0: I'll start by reading the text, and then I will pray for all of us with him in mind, and then we'll start. So if you have your Bibles, John 14, we'll be going through verses 15 through 31. I'll start by just reading verses 15 through 20, and then I'll pray. John 14, starting in verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us all supernatural ability this time and this time to lift our eyes to heaven and to behold your glory, to catch a glimpse of what you meant when you said that we would see that you are in your Father, your Father is in you, that you are in us, that we are in you, that picture of perfect oneness and harmony, that source of everlasting, overflowing joy that radiates from the throne room of God that you've invited us into. Lord, use this time, use this word to just pull back the scales from our eyes and to quiet the murmurs in our hearts, to let our soul aim individually and collectively be to see the glory of Christ and to be transformed by it. You promise that your word is alive and active and that it is meant for this very thing. So I pray that you would do it in this time for all of us. For your glory, for our joy in you, I pray. Amen. So I want to begin just by asking a question that you've probably heard in a myriad of ways a number of times, might be tired of the question by now, but it has to deal with how do you know that you love someone? How do you truly know that you love someone? Or or when do you cross that threshold from liking them into, okay, now I realize that I love them. How do you discern that? How do you know that? In fact, I want everyone to just picture in their minds someone specifically that you would say that you actually love, whether it's romantic love or it's the love of a deep friendship that you have, a love for a child, a love for a parent. Just someone that you would say, I definitely love this person. Have someone specific in mind. And then I want to ask you, how was it that you came to know that you love that person specifically? Is it because some uh, rise in emotion, warm affections that you feel in your heart every time that you think about this person and that's your indicator to let you know that you truly do love this person? Because if that's the case, then the follow-up question is, well, what happens, uh, do you have those same affections every single time that you think about that person or is it only sometimes? Do those feelings come and go and rise and, and fall? And therefore, does that mean that you only sometimes love them and don't love them other times. What, what's our criteria of knowing what long-lasting and permanent, and solid love is? That's precisely the issue that's at hand in our text today. Except it's racketed up to another degree because we're not going to be discussing how we know that we love a person, but Jesus is discussing how we know that we love The person, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. How does our Savior, our Lord, define what love for him really is? And here's the truth that's guiding his search, uh, his search of us. As he shines that spotlight on us, just as in the text he was shining it upon his disciples and examining them, here's the truth that's guiding his search, his examination of us. If you're taking notes, you might say this is the main point of today's sermon. The point is this. True love for Jesus is shown by true obedience and trust in Jesus. True love for Jesus, if we really say that we love him, Jesus says that's evidenced by true obedience and trust in Jesus not just the feelings that we have for him that come and go, though those are a component of love, but it's primarily walked by, marked by obedience. He says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is the issue. Do you do what he tells you to do? If you are one that says, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Christ, I identify as a believer... Is this true of you? Do you do what he tells you to do? Do you trust in him? Does his word carry weight for you? Is it like an anchor in your life or just the occasional breeze that blows by your sails? Do you live off of him? Does he feed your soul? That's what Jesus is talking about. True love for Jesus is shown by true trust and obedience in Jesus. And this is extremely important in Jesus' eyes because he is right at the doorstep of his own death. He knows that within 24 hours he is going to suffer unimaginably, not just at the hands of the Romans who are crucifying him, but suffering under the weight of the wrath of his father as a just punishment for sin in the stead of his people. And so this is uh, getting your last affairs in order. Is the last time in this life, face to face, prior to his death, that he will see his disciples, or as he refers to, his little children. And just this dynamic, just that, with that setting in mind, um, makes me think of a, a, a tragically beautiful story that I've heard of uh, in terms of the Nazi concentration camps back in the 1930s and 40s. Um, In the Polish town of Piotrkow in in Poland, there was this mother who, she was a Jewish woman, and the Nazis had come into the town, and they were herding all the Jews together like cattle and getting ready to force them to board these trains to take them to different concentration camps. And this mother, in her last moments with her four-year-old son, the mother's name was Kaya, the son's name was Yisrael. She made a decision to try to preserve her son's life. So as they were coming in, as, as they were rounding up all the people, Kaya, the mother, knew that they were about to send her and the other women and some of the children to uh, Ravensbrück. Ravensbrück was the name of one of the notorious concentration camps for women where death by starvation, beating, torture, hanging, shooting... And medical experiments were all part of a daily grotesque regimen where almost certainly she would die. She knew she would die. In the last moments that she had with her four-year-old son, while they were herded together, she pushed her four-year-old son towards his older brother who then took this four-year-old and put him in a duffel bag to hide him, to smuggle him with the older brother on a different train to what was known as a safer concentration camp. The young boy, Israel, did end up surviving as a result of what his mother did in those last moments with him. The mother, unfortunately, did not. As she predicted, she died in the concentration camp. But in her last moments, knowing that suffering and death was imminent, her thought was entirely upon preserving the life of her child. And that's, the, that's the, the, the feeling, the emotion, the compassion that is driving this entire conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, those that he calls his little ones, his little children. These are his last moments with them. And so he's pressing upon them the desire for, for his disciples to walk with him in obedience, even after he is gone, to stay close with him, to stay connected with him. This is how he desires to preserve the life of his people who claim to be his followers. So we'll see that as we walk through the text, and we'll actually divide it up into three sections. Again, if you're taking notes, uh, the first section will be Jesus expects obedience. Number two, Jesus empowers obedience. And number three, Jesus exemplifies obedience. Jesus expects obedience. Jesus empowers obedience. Jesus exemplifies obedience. So let's jump in again, looking at verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey the things that I've said. This is a note that Jesus is harping on throughout this section. It's like the beat of a drum. Every couple of verses, he's coming right back to just driving home this point. He says it here in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, if you were to look forward in verse 21, He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, in verse 23, he says it the same truth in a slightly different way. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And he will come to him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He says the same truth in the opposite way in the following verse, verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is driving home this point of walking close with him in obedience is how we evidence our love for him. If it is true that he is everything to us, that he is our life, and that we believe, that we we say that he's trustworthy, that he can be leaned upon, that he can be confided in, that we ought to walk in obedience. Now, first look back in verse 15, when it says commandments, plural, uh, people normally look at this and say, okay, well, it, when Jesus is saying, okay, keep my commandments, he's just referring to the different ethical commands. Like, just do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Um, pretty much how we oftentimes as Christians boil down our our lives, simplify our Christian walk. Just do this, don't do that, check off this box, and I'm good with Jesus. Um, So all the time, we, we, we fit ourselves into these different categories of, like, do this with your money. I've got examples, if any of you are visual learners. Do this with your money. Don't do that with your money. Do this with your kids. Don't do that with your kids. Do this when you eat. Don't do that when you eat. Do this on a Sunday. Amen. Sean, don't do that on a Saturday. <laughs> There's no amen following that one, but eye on you. Right? We, we boil our lives down to this simple list of do this and do not do that. And we devoid, um, we rob ourselves of this relationship with Christ. And in fact, if we continue to progress through this text, we realize that just the different isolated commands is not what Jesus has in mind, at least not in total. Um, again, if you were to look quickly towards uh, verse 23 again, when he says the same truth in a slightly different way, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, singular. He doesn't say words that time or commandments that time. He says word. And what's happening is as this conversation is progressing with Jesus and his disciples, he's zooming out and giving them a fuller picture of what he means. He doesn't just mean the isolated commands of what to do and what not to do, but he means the entirety of his word, all that God has spoken through his son, and through his prophets, the entirety of the word of God ought to be treasured by us, ought to be kept by us. It's not just a list of commands, but it's, it's a clinging to uh, the word of God as if it's the last drip from a faucet when you're in the middle of a desert. Every word that God has proclaimed, he has proclaimed it out of love for his people, for us to learn of his ways and to know him. To press this a little bit further, what does he mean by "keep my commandments"? It originally comes from a verb in the Hebrew that just uh, there's sort of two aspects to this one meaning or what this word is envisioning. So the first aspect is the idea of of clinging to something, enjoying it yourself, partaking of it yourself. And the second aspect is guarding against any outside force that would hinder you from being able to keep, to enjoy, to uh, partake in this thing. So when he's telling us to keep his commandments, he's saying for not only for us to uh, dive into and relish his word and to study it and to learn it, but there's a, an aspect of guarding, of being zealous to protect this time that I have in the word of God. Anything that would prohibit me from obeying this word and, and just immersing myself in this word, I am to guard against that as well. The sort of how I treat leftovers oftentimes. When my wife wants to eat some of my leftovers, I like to keep my leftovers for myself. In that sense, I mean, I'm going to dive headfirst into my leftovers, and if she reaches her fork over, I'm going to guard against her fork, invading in my plate. There's a dual aspect of keeping. So what he's saying is, for us, He's challenging us sort of on on two fronts. Not only are you in his word, are you seeking to know the Lord through what he has revealed of himself? Are you really? Is is your relationship with God just something that happens on an occasional Sunday or just a, a very off again, on again type of relationship? Or are you clinging to him? And secondly, are you guarding your ways with him? Are you guarding the time that you have in in his word? Are you guarding against any outside influence that keeps you from walking with the Lord? Verses come to mind like when Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Like taking very serious anything that keeps you from walking closely with your Lord, because that is the pathway to joy. And so he expects our obedience, number one, But number two, if you've been walking with Jesus any number of, any amount of time, you will very quickly discover that it is very hard to live as Jesus calls us to live. If you are in any type of close relationship, if you have a spouse, amen to this. If you have a child, if you have a parent, a strained relationship, a co-worker, you'll know that it is extremely hard to walk in the ways that Jesus has called us to walk in obedience. that's why the bulk of this text and the bulk of this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples is about, number two, how Jesus empowers obedience. He doesn't just expect us to walk in his ways under our own strength and power, because you will quickly fail. He expects us to tap in him, He has this whole imagery in the following chapter of abiding in the vine, just staying connected as a grapewood to a vine for its source of nutrients, staying connected to him and allowing him to work obedience out through us. So let's look at that section, starting in verse 16. I'll read 16 and 17. He says to his disciples, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is referring here to when he is crucified and he is dead and then is raised again three days later and ascends to heaven where he dwells with the Lord forever now that once that happened, he was telling his disciples that he would send his spirit into this world to not just be among them as as the spirit, the presence of God was at that time among them, but to be even closer to them, to be within them, to actually dwell and live within them and compel them to grow and to reveal the glory of the Lord within them. And it's interesting, when he says helper, some of your translations might actually have like the word counselor instead of the word helper or like the word comforter. And depending on how you understand counselor, that's probably the best way of understanding what he, what he's saying here, like the role of the Holy Spirit. Because counselor, the way that the Greek um, in that world, the secular world, the world understood this word, was in the sense of like a legal counselor, not just like a marriage counselor or someone who's there just just to encourage you, but even primarily someone who is there to fight your battles. Uh, it, it makes me think of a contemporary uh, situation. If you've been uh, watching the news at all the last couple of months, and you, you'd be aware of just the ongoing case with Bill Cosby, um, the things that he's accused of, the sexual assault that he's accused of is horrendous. It's terrible crime if he's committed these things. Um, but it, it's been an ongoing situation, and yet over the se- last couple months, you've never seen Bill Cosby go out there and try to speak for himself in the presence of the media to go attack the media to do anything like that. Instead, what you've seen or who you've seen is his lawyer, this sharp-witted woman, Monique Presley, and she is just, she's bad. I mean, she goes on every news station, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, everything. She goes on all these news stations, and these uh, media pundits are always trying to, like, Catch her in a half truth, or uh, assert a certain thing, and hoping that they can slip it past her to spin a certain reality for uh, the viewing audience. And and every time that they do that, she catches it and just strikes it dead, and just makes them look silly. Like it's it's embarrassing. And uh, this this woman, she just she's an example um, in the way that she defends Bill Cosby. Of she is the one that is going out and fighting the battles for him. She is the one that is uh, dictating how we'll deal with this situation or how we'll avoid this situation, who we'll we'll speak to, who, who we won't speak to. Everything that surrounds this case, Bill Cosby is not trying to fight this battle for himself. She's dictating the pace. And that's an example of what Jesus is getting at here with the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to fight your battles for you. In the sense that he is the one that says what we should say and what we should not say. Where we should go and where we should not go. In order to preserve our life. The preciousness of our relationship with Christ. He's that force within us. He's our counselor. And yet I don't want to come across as if I'm saying that it's just that cold formal relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. Because that's not entirely at all what Jesus is saying. Because indeed, I mean, the compassion that we experience through the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our relationship with Christ is incredible. We can see Jesus' compassion as we continue to move forward, just in the way that he refers to his disciples. Reading in verse 18 through 20, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Just in that Jesus refers to his disciples in this moment as potential orphans that he could leave, that he could leave behind, is an indication of where his mind is, how he's viewing these little children of his. We have a number of people in this church who have... um, wonderfully, thankfully, been a part of adoption. We have a number of adopted kids in this family and uh, in this church family, and even in the Cordell's household themselves, they've shared the story about their youngest son, Justice, and how Justice was uh, originally, as a baby, he was left as an orphan out to fend for himself in the jungle. Um, His birth parents had, had left him out in the jungle essentially to die, and somebody found him, found justice, brought him into an orphanage, and uh, long story short, he's now a well-cared-for and loved child um, by the Cordells. But just, if you were to ask Dana, say, what, when you think of an orphan, what comes to your mind? And just the compassion that would grip your heart to think of a child that cannot fend for themselves, left to themselves, and how tragic of a situation that would be. That feeling is what Jesus has for his people. He, When he calls them little children, he, he's looking at people that uh, physically, I mean, he's 30 years old, and these other disciples are probably around the same age, and yet as their Lord, as their Savior, he sees how infantile they are in comparison to him, in comparison to the Lord of glory, the one that has dwelled forever in eternity, that has created all things, that is perfect in knowledge in comparison to our weak and deficient knowledge, our weak, slow of hearing ears and our hearts. He looks at us as orphans or as potential orphans if he left us behind. And he asserts, I will not leave you this way. I will come to you. Yet a little while longer, the world will see me no more. He's referring to when he is uh, resurrected and ascends out of this world into heaven. And yet his presence through his spirit will remain with his people. He returns and reiterates the point, just his main point of just walking in obedience, drawing into that relationship, drawing closer with the Lord. In verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Interesting way of just describing the role of the Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing within us? What is his aim? His aim is to manifest, to pull back the scales of our spiritual eyes or the, the calloused surface of our hearts to enable us to see Jesus, to manifest Jesus in some way intimately to his people. Now, Judas, one of his disciples, don't, doesn't really understand this fully, and so he, he, he raises a question in verse 22. In response to this, he says, Lord, how is it, and this is not the Judas that betrayed him, A different Judas. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, to us, and not to the world? None of the disciples at this time really had a clear idea or understanding of what Jesus meant when he said that he was going to leave and come back and manifest himself because, across the board, what the Jews believed at that time about the Messiah, about the Christ who would come into the world is that when he came into the world, his sole mission would be to eradicate all sin, to strike down every rival nation, every wicked nation, and to establish his perfect kingdom on earth in that time. And so Judas's hang-up is, how are you going to strike down the nations if you're saying the nations won't even see you? you won't be seen. How, how is it that you will accomplish and set up your kingdom on earth and nobody sees it? That's what his, his hang-up is. But he's just missing Jesus entirely. Jesus in his first coming was not coming to condemn the world, he says in this book, but to save it, to provide a way for people to be gathered into him before he comes a second time in the end of time to fully establish his kingdom on earth. And he's establishing this people spiritually, and dwelling in them, his word going forth infused by the power of the Holy Spirit and changing lives, changing the lives of us in this room. So Jesus answers him and just returns to this steady drumbeat, just walk in obedience. Jesus answers him in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Now, when he said, when I was reading across this text and he said, "We, my father and I will come and make our home with you. Um, it made me think of my own father and how oftentimes I kind of resent his coming to my home. And the reason I resent his coming to my home is because he can be nosy. He can invade spaces that he should not be in. Uh, for instance, anytime he comes, it's just just who he is, and we love him for it, uh, not in the time, but after the fact, that anytime he comes, he's just checking to see if everything's in order. Like, if, if I'm doing all right and, like, everything's good with my family, so he'll go, he'll go in the garage, he'll start up the car and check to see if the oil's at a good thing, <laughs> if I need to get an oil change. He'll check the tread on the car tires and see if I need to rotate the car tires or change the car tires. He'll walk everywhere in our house, including, like, our master bedroom and bathroom to check if everything is cleanly and tidy and ordered. Like, that that's just the way that he is, and it drives me crazy, and I can say that because he's not going to watch this. Um, (laughs) At least I hope. Daddy, I love you. But... uh, it stresses me out, but the reason that he comes and he acts this way is because he's used to a certain environment around him. He's used to a certain order, a certain cleanliness even, just a certain um, environment that is a standard, a high, maybe not high, maybe that's too much of a stretch, but it's a standard above where we live and just how we live and how I typically do things last minute. Um, But it just got me thinking that if I feel that way, if I'm that uncomfortable about when my dad comes into my home, how much more of a shocking thing is it that the Lord of glory, whose home is in paradise, says, I'm coming down into your home, the home of your heart, that is untidy, unkept, that has a lot of filthy areas, uh, dark corners, th- those dark closets that just have a whole bunch of mess that you never open that closet, that he says, I'm coming down into your heart, and we'll make our home with you if you walk in obedience with me. Just astounded at his grace that he would do that. And I think it was really insightful. Someone from the early service had, had pointed out that taking this point a step further, not only does he come into our untidy, unkempt homes, but he says, you sit back, I will be the one that cleans everything up. I'm not expecting you to clean up before I come over, before you have the company. You just sit there and let me come and clean everything up. We'll make our home, we'll make our home there. Amazing grace. And when he makes his home with us, this is what he does. This is, this next section really Uh, helps us to understand what the role of the Holy Spirit really is. Um, So he starts in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, or the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, this is what he's doing. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is coming, and He will teach you all things, and even more specifically, he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now this is really interesting. this if you're if you're just thinking about the chronology of events, so the the disciples, they walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry. They see him say things, they see him do things, and they're filing all these memories away in their head, and they don't fully understand what they're seeing in that time and at that point. But as time progresses, Jesus is eventually killed, he's crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. He gives them his spirit, and then there's all these points in the Gospels where it says the spirit then then caused them to remember what he had said before or what he had done before and remembering that caused them to believe more deeply. So this is what Jesus, what the Spirit is doing. It's taking the memories that we file away in our heads. The scripture, the word, the teachings of Jesus that we file away in our heads. And the Spirit is constantly shining a light upon those truths and uh, pressing them more deeply upon our hearts, gradually revealing the depth of beauty and glory in those teachings, in those words of Jesus, in those pictures, depictions of Jesus in order to draw us closer to him and to see more of his glory. And that's why we've placed such a strong emphasis, and especially this year, we want to place a strong emphasis on being regularly in the word, abiding in the word, because this system breaks down if God's word, if we're not filing away those files, those, those uh, words in our mind for the Holy Spirit to shine upon to transform our hearts. It's why you need to be regularly in the Word. And even if in that moment you're saying, this is dry, I'm, I'm not getting a lot out of it, you're still filing away. You're, you're, you're creating a library that the Holy Spirit can use to reveal Christ to you. And He gradually will. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And so God gives us, Christ, after he left, he gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us in walking in obedience. And if that is truly happening in your life, then that's how you measure whether or not you love Jesus or not. Not by feelings that come and go, but are you growing in obedience and are you experiencing his power in a growing ability to walk with him. Finally, just last point, looking at these last couple verses, verse thirty-one and 30 and 31, not only does Jesus expect obedience, not only does he empower obedience, but he himself exemplifies obedience. Verse 30, he says, I will no longer talk much with you. But the ruler of the world is coming. As we said before, the events are already in motion. His fate is already sealed. Judas already left the company of the disciples in the previous chapter, chapter 13. He's out fetching those who would betray Jesus, who would capture him as Jesus speaks. As this conversation has been going on, they've been closing in, and he knows that death is at his doorstep. The ruler of the world is coming. He knows it. It's imminent. This ruler has no claim on him. But he says in verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. In other words, in verse 31, he's saying, I am an example of what it means to obey the Father. I myself am walking in obedience, demonstrating for you what it means to walk in obedience. And this is how the world knows by looking at my obedience to my Father that I love my Father. Philippians 2.8, Paul says, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If nothing else, this is an example that Jesus' life is an example that the pathway of obedience is not uh, to say that—walking in obedience is not to say that everything is going to be rosy or that what it means to be a Christian is to avoid all the pitfalls of life. Oftentimes, it's quite the opposite. Because God is so serious in wanting us to know the joy that Jesus himself experienced in his Father's presence— as Jesus said in the next chapter, in chapter 15, all these things I'm saying to you, everything that I say and I tell you to do, I'm telling you to do it so that my joy will be in you and that your joy will be full. That's his aim. And in order to accomplish that, in order to know God and know how to lean upon him as Jesus lent upon him, oftentimes he'll take us through difficulty. Difficulty. But Jesus is an example of how to walk through that difficulty, as Hebrews 12.2 says, that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, was looking to the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that laid beyond the suffering and the difficulty that he was experiencing looking beyond the present trial of your life, seeing the glory that is secured for you because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and he will never abandon you, he will never leave you. He's made his home there. So Jesus is our great example of what it means to walk in obedience. And so the challenge is is clear. Do you if you are a Christian here, if you say you're a follower of Jesus here, do you truly love Jesus? If the answer is yes, are you walking in obedience? I know for all of us here that there are areas in your life where you are not obeying Jesus. And you know them, I know them in my own life, where I'm still holding Jesus at bay in this one area, this, this uh, whatever this one thing, this pleasure is that, I, that I'm clinging on to. It's one thing that I refuse to relinquish, that I'm not trusting him. I'm not walking in obedience. And therefore, I'm I'm saying with my life, with my actions, that he's not trustworthy. What are those areas in your life? As we close and just as we pray, I want you to specifically just ask yourself that question quietly. Just speak to the Lord. Lord, what are the areas of my life where I'm not walking in obedience, where I don't trust you, where I don't love you? And as we pray, just ask that, and I'll close this after a minute or two. Let's all go to the throne of grace together. Father, I pray that we would not play games with you. Lord, that we wouldn't treat the truth of the gospel as a light thing, but as the most weighty and glorious truth in the universe. That apart from Christ, apart from one living perfectly before you and meriting, earning his way back into glory, By living a perfectly blemish free life. Not one careless word, not one jealous sentiment, (coughs) not one forbidden desire acted upon. But Lord, that He accomplished what none of us would ever, ever accomplish for ourselves, and that is access to glory, access to joy everlasting access to complete confidence and faith and trust that it will be ours and that we do not have to worry about how perfectly we walk in obedience, but just that we cling to you, the one who is perfect in his obedience. Lord, I just pray that you would take each one of us, those who are truly desirous to want to know you, to walk closely with you, to see your glory, to see you manifest in our lives and in our hearts. That you would take those things that we refuse to relinquish to you, and you would cause us to obey. That our walk with you would not be a complex thing, but a very simple thing. That where you tell us to go, we would go. What you tell us to do, we would do. And that in so doing, we would experience life in your presence a small glimpse of it in this age and fully in the age to come, Lord, we pray. Do it this week. Do a work in our lives in this week. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.